The purpose of this whole series is, uh, is to help you understand the Bible because we want you to learn it, love it, and live it. Uh, the goal is for you to build your life on the foundation of God's Word. Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty four, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. So it takes more than hearing the Word. Yes, you've got to hear the Word, but then you've got to put it into practice. You build your life on God's Word. And Jesus says that the person who does that is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So the goal is not just to get you to know your Bible. The goal is to get the Bible in you so that that becomes a reality for you. Because I'll tell you, in 2017, you're going to face some bad days. You're going to face some storms. And you may say, well, Pastor Kelly, you need to be more positive. Well, I'm positive you're going to face some bad days and some storms. Because Jesus said you were going to. And he says that's why you want to build your house on the foundation of God's word. Because then those bad days don't have the same effect that they had on your life as they did in the past. If you diligently build your life on the foundation of God's word, you'll stand strong when those storms hit. So that's why we're leading you into 21 days of prayer and fasting. That's why we're doing the It Is Written series. Because prayer and the Word are the two wings of the Christian life. You need them both. You need them both. And so we finished our first week of 21 days of prayer. Many of you have been coming up here 5 o'clock in the morning through the cold, through the snow. It's just been awesome to see people coming up here to pray. And many more of you have been praying at home, and so we just encourage you to continue to do that. If you didn't get a Pray First book, we ran out of them last weekend, so there's some at the table. Get your Prayer First uh, uh, wristband. And uh, we're reading our Bibles. Uh, Several of you have talked to me about your Bible reading plan for 2017. I mean, it's just been awesome. But honestly, this series is more of a pastoral care series than it is a teaching series. Because the goal is, is not just teach you about the Bible. The goal is to help you make the Bible the foundation of your life. That's our goal. That, that's our pastoral care for you. So the, the goal is not that you'll just know what's in the Bible, but you will love what's in it. Because that you will just love it so much that, that rather than Bible reading being a duty, you know, something you have to do, it becomes a desire. It's something that you love to do. And the key to loving the Bible is understanding the Bible. The, the more you understand something, the more you love it. Okay? When I first married my wife, uh, Katie, I was 18, she was 12, and <laughs> I didn't understand her at all. And we've been married now 43 years. And I'll just tell you, that the, the, I, now I understand her more. And the more I understand her, the more I love her. And there is just a whole lot more to understand. That's one of the marvelous, uh, marvelous things about her. But the more you understand something, the more uh, you love it. So take out your sermon notes today. If there's every day you needed sermon notes, it's this one. And we're going to look at how to understand the Bible. And it starts with this. It starts with the word Bible simply means book. Holy Bible means sacred book. And it's sacred because the Bible is not like any other book. The Bible is the most read book in history. It's the best-selling book in history. It's the most translated book in history. It's the most trusted book in history. And next week, the whole sermon is going to be on why you can trust the Bible. Because it's trustworthy. You can trust it. The Bible's like no other book. It was written over a period of 1,600 years. 
in over a dozen countries on three continents in three languages by 40 different people from all walks of life. Now, how do you get that many different people over that long a time span in that diverse uh, geographical locations to write something that has no contradiction? It has the same theme. Well, it would make sense if it were written by one person over a short period of time. You know, the Quran was written by one person, Muhammad. The Analects of Confucius were written by one person. The writings of Buddha, one person. But to have 40 different authors in three languages in 12 countries over 1,600 years, you'd literally have poets, prophets, princes, kings, sailors, soldiers, attorneys, doctors, farmers, scholars, shepherds, priests, historians, fishermen, tax collectors, and businessmen who are writing in caves, in ships, in homes, palaces, prisons, and deserts. How'd they come up with the same story? Because while you have 40 different writers, there's only one author. It's one, men held the pen, but God wrote the story. In fact, the Bible says all Scripture is God-breathed. And that doesn't just mean he said it. It means he uh, said it with the power for its fulfillment. All Scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, circle that phrase, servant of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Circle the phrase, every good work. Because the Bible works. It works. It'll work in your marriage. It'll work in your finances. It'll work in your business. I mean, you just need to build your life on it, put it into, into practice. Uh, go to the marriage conference that's coming up. Start building your marriage on God's Word. Go through Financial Peace University. Start building your finances on God's Word. Why? Because it works. It works. Now, one of the things, if you're going to understand the Bible, one of the things you need to know is, is that the books in the Bible are not in there in chronological order. The books of the Bible are in there by type of literature. Law with law, history with history, poetry with poetry, prophets with prophets, and so on. And that makes it difficult for the person who wants to just pick up the Bible and start reading through it. Because you can't read through it like a novel or even a history book. Because it doesn't read that way. That's not how it's organized. It's not like any other book. So let me give you an overview of the Old Testament. The first five books of the Old Testament are called the Law because they contain the laws that God gave to Moses. And Moses wrote the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They're called the Mosaic Law. Now, there's more than law in those, in those books. There's the creation account, Adam and Eve, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph and Moses, the Egyptian pharaohs, the Passover, the Exodus through the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments, the tabernacle, the wandering in the wilderness. And there are a lot of great stories in, in, in the law. And Noah and the flood, Lot and his wife, Aaron and the golden calf, Balaam and his tonking donkey. Do you know there's a tonking, don talking donkey in the Bible? I knew some guys uh, years ago that had a Christian band called Donkey Talk. Okay, so I mean, there's amazing stuff uh, in the Bible. And just these great stories in these five books. There's also a tremendous amount of detail about what can and can't be offered to God, what you can and can't do, how you are supposed to live with one another in order to be God's holy people. That's why they're called uh, the books of the law. 
Now, the next 12 books uh, tell the history of the nation of Israel. From Joshua's battle in Jericho, you know, when the walls came a-tumbling down, all the way up to Esther, when she became queen of Persia during the exile. So Esther is actually the end of the Old Testament historical period, but the book of Esther is halfway through the Old Testament. But it's the end of the historical period. So you can see how this gets confusing, you know, even though it makes sense when you understand it. Just like your wife can be confusing until you understand her and then she makes sense, sort of. <laughs> then, uh, uh, after Esther comes the poetical books. So, and that's Job through the Song of Solomon. And you can actually place the poems in these poetical books within the history, the historical books of Israel. Uh, do you know Job lived uh, probably during the time of Abraham. The story of Job is one of the oldest stories in the Bible. Uh, you know, after the, some of the creation account, that's when the story of Job happened. Yet it's, it appears halfway through the Old Testament because it's a poetical book. Uh, the Psalms. The Psalms can be placed within the historical uh, books. Uh, you read the, through the Bible chronologically, and, and that's what happens. You know, they, all that stuff is put where it's supposed to. One of the Psalms is written by Moses. Moses wrote Psalm 90. And uh, um, the, the last section of the Old Testament is the prophetical books. And, uh, you know, the prophets lived and wrote during the historical period. And so you can place them in their historical context. And when I discovered that, that made, uh, helped me understand those prophets uh, a lot better because I knew what was going on. But the prophetical section is broken down into uh, five major prophets and 12 minor prophets. And they're called major and minor not because some are more important than others, but just because they're bigger, they're longer. Some of the minor prophets are one or two pages long, but the information in them is, is crucial information. You, you need to read the minor prophets. You need to read them because when you get to heaven and you meet uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, uh, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, when you meet those guys, you, you can say, uh, I read your book. <laughs> I mean, that'll go a long way. It'll go a long way for you. So at the end of the Old Testament story, when the Jews come out of the exile, they come back into the land of Israel, they rebuild Jerusalem, they rebuild the temple, and that's the story of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And then we have the 400 silent years when there's no word from God. No prophet spoke, no angel appeared, God didn't utter a peep for 400 years. And during that time, Alexander the Great and the Greeks conquered their, their known world. They conquered Israel and Egypt. And then Alexander died. The whole thing fell apart. And then the Roman Empire came up. And that's when the New Testament was written. That's when the New Testament starts. And the New Testament starts with the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four biographies of Jesus. Written by four different men from four different perspectives. But it's one story. You can take those four stories and harmonize them and read them as one story. And then after the resurrection uh, and Jesus ascends into heaven, the church comes on the scene. And the book of Acts is the history book of the early church. And during this time, there were churches planted all around the Mediterranean Sea. And the apostles, like Paul and Peter and John and James, they wrote letters to those churches. And there are 21 letters to the churches that are in the Bible. And they're called epistles. And epistle just means letter. 
And they, uh, they're valuable, very valuable to us today because they give us the doctrine, the instruction. They, they tell us how to live uh, as Christians, as part of the church. That's why we spend so much time studying them because they tell us how to be the church, how to be the body of Christ that God has called us to be. We're not the nation of Israel. We're the church. And so we, we, we get our, our instructions. But there's real value in reading the Old Testament, because it's part of the story. Now, the last book, Revelation, that, that's where it, God just wraps everything up together. Israel, the church, the whole bit. God showed the Apostle John this uh, amazing things that are going to happen to the church, to Israel, to the world, to the devil. And, and John saw this world, this universe destroyed, and then a new heaven and a new earth created as a, a, a place for those who believe in Jesus Christ. And so that's how the Bible's organized. But now on the back of your outline, if you flip it over, turn it sideways, I want to give you a picture, a picture of the plot of the Bible. And the plot is actually a mirror image, a, a mirror image. And the story begins in Genesis with God and righteous man in paradise. And God made man with no sin, no guilt, no shame. Adam was perfect. Eve was perfect. The garden was perfect. That was God's goal. It was God's design, his, his desire. God and man in a perfect relationship, in a perfect environment. That was God's intent. By the third chapter of Genesis, things go awry. Because Satan and sin enter. And what sin does, sin contaminates and it separates. God is a holy God, but sin contaminated the world. Sin contaminated mankind. And so we were separated from God. There's this gap, uh, this huge distance that comes between us and God because of sin. Some of you felt it today. Some of you, as you came to church today, the gap between you and God is massive. Sin, your sin, is the cause for that gap. And if all of us sin, we've all experienced the gap, but if you've never had your sins forgiven, if you've never believed in Jesus Christ and been reconciled to God, then that gap seems massive. And anytime sin takes over, chaos ensues. Because the devil is the author, he's the father of chaos. And that's how you know when you sin. People don't have to tell you you've sinned. You know you've sinned because your life just starts to fall apart and become such a mess because of sin. It's chaos. And that's what happened in the Bible. Things got so chaotic, God looked out at the world and he said, I've got to start over. I mean, this has just gotten out of hand. And so the world was judged and destroyed. That's the story of Noah and the flood. You know, God looked around, he realized people had become so controlled by sin. The Bible says that the thoughts of men were only evil all the time. That's how chaotic things had become. And God said, I've got I to gotta deal with this. And he looked around and he found one, one righteous man, Noah. And so God killed off everybody else except Noah and his family. God even killed all the animals except for the ones Noah rescued in the ark. And then Noah and his family repopulated the earth. And it didn't work. Didn't work. The chaos of sin entered in again. And we have the story of the Tower of Babel, 
where, where people thought, well, you know, we, we, we can't be reconciled to God because of our sins, so we're just going to do our own thing. And they began to build this tower. And the idea of the tower wasn't it was going to be a ladder that reached all the way up to heaven. No, it's, that not, it's not that naive. It's much more sinister. The idea was, if we just all come together, we don't need God. We can create our own system independent of God. And so they created a one-world system. And God looked down and said, you know, if they're all united together like that, there's nothing that can stop them. I mean, who knows what kind of evil stuff they can come up with. So God intervened, and he confused their languages, and he scattered them throughout the earth. And so he he created people groups and languages and nations and scattered them all over. And then God said, I'm going to pick one people group, I'm going to pick one nation, I'm going to pick one man. And he picked Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to make a holy nation out of your descendants. And so we have the account of Abraham and his son Isaac and Abraham's grandson Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were God's holy people. And so in the Old Testament, we have the laws that Moses gave to the 12 tribes. We have the history of the 12 tribes. And and God created the system. He gave them the commandments, the laws, the instructions, how to make sacrifices, how to treat one another, how to worship God. That didn't work either. You know, why didn't the law work? Why didn't any of the stuff before the law work? And this is important if you're going to understand your Bible. You need to know that this stuff didn't work because it was all external. You know, they had a law, but they didn't want to follow it. They, they had a law, but they didn't like it because it wasn't in here. It was external. Simple way to look at the Bible is the Old Testament is external. The New Testament is internal. It's internal. And honestly, none of this surprised God. This was God's plan all along. He had to go through all of this to convince us that we can't do it without him. That's why you need to read the Old Testament, because you need to be convinced who God is and who you are. It's crucial. And God did all this amazing stuff in the Old Testament really to bring us to his ultimate plan, to bring us to the hinge pin of history, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the answer to our dilemma. He's he's the only one that can bridge that gap between us and God. He's the only one who can make us righteous. He's the only one who can bring order into our chaos. And Jesus is at the top and the center of this mirror image because it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And Jesus came and he said, yes, you've sinned and and you've got to pay for your sin. You know, it's got to be paid for. Hell is not a place where God sends people that he's mad at. Hell is a place where you can go if you want to pay for your own sins. That's what hell's for, for people who want to pay for their own sins. Because Jesus said, they got to be paid for, I'll pay for them, or you can pay for them yourself. Make your choice. And Jesus said, if you believe, if you let me pay for them, not only will I pay for your sins, but I'll give you the Holy Spirit. And he'll indwell you, and he'll come in, and he will change you and transform you and do a work inside of you. He says, the the law, it's not going to be external anymore. I'm going to write it on your heart. And he says, I'm not going to use the 12 tribes anymore. I'm going to use the 12 disciples and the church 
is going to become my holy people. The church. He said, I'm going to do it different this time. It's not going to be an external, not going to be laws written on stone or on tablets or on parchment. It's going to be a law written on your heart. Hebrews chapter 8, Jesus says, I got a new way to do this. It's a new covenant that's internal, not external. It's miraculous. And that's where we are in God's plan. That's where we are in history. That's where we are in His story. We're living in the church age. But honestly, and, and this ought to alarm you, people today are rejecting the church at a whole new level. I mean, if you're my age, 39, <laughs> or older, okay, you, you know, there used to be a time when it wasn't like this. I mean, there used to be a time where there was very little difference between the world and the church. There, you know, when I grew up, grew up in a little town of 300, there was a town a little farther away that was big enough to have a movie theater. But you couldn't go to a movie on Wednesday night because Wednesday night was church night. And so many people went to church for Wednesday night prayer meeting that the movie theater couldn't make any money showing a movie. In fact, the manager of the movie theater was in church on Wednesday night praying for the community. You know, stuff used to be closed on Sunday. Why? Because everybody went to church. Everybody took a Sabbath. You know, today, no, the world's going their own way again. And you don't have to read the Bible to know where they're going. You can just read the newspaper. I mean, they're going back to a one-world government system. And the Antichrist is going to be the final broker of all of this, but the alliance is already uh, forming. There's a reason why Russia's involved in the Middle East. There's a reason why Islam is invading Europe. And there's a reason for every headline that you read. God's prophetic plan is being fulfilled to a T. And frankly, I think it's being fulfilled at such a rate that it may be fulfilled within our generation. The Antichrist is going to rise and, and unify Europe, unify the world, institute a buying and selling system, a one-world currency. You'll have to take a mark of a beast, the beast swearing allegiance to the Antichrist to even be able to buy or sell anything. The mark will appear on your hand or on your forehead and eventually, the Antichrist will set himself up as God and demand to be worshipped. And at some point in this, God is going to step in and rescue his church in a mar marvelously miraculous way. And then the world will be judged and destroyed. And this time, the destruction won't be with a flood uh, of water like in Noah's day. It'll be with fire. It, it, it will be a refining fire, a purification. Peter says that the universe itself will melt with a fervent heat. I mean, down to the level of the elements. And God is going to do a renewal, a renovation of the whole thing. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth where the remnant of God's people, both those from Israel and those from the church who have their word written on, his, on their hearts, who are going to uh, indwell that. That, that's, that's what makes it different this time. And God is going to bind up Satan and eradicate sin. Satan and sin exit. No more chaos. And we get to spend eternity, not in a celestial retirement home playing a harp. No, you, you're going to have God and redeemed man back in paradise. Do you know the closest word we have in the English to, to the Hebrew and Greek words for paradise? Closest word we have is the word resort. Yeah, resort. 
I mean, there are so many bad ideas about heaven out there, about what heaven's like. If you caught a view of what heaven was like, you couldn't wait to get there. Couldn't wait to get there. You know, they call heaven the afterlife. Like, well, this is life, and then that's what comes after. No, this is the before life. I mean, heaven is, is uh, it's the real thing. You know, we talk about it's afterlife. Like, all we're going to do is just kind of haunt people or something. No, no. The, the best life is the life to come. When Jesus gives you eternal life, it doesn't just mean that it lasts for an eternity. It, it speaks of the quality of the life that you receive. Listen, things can seem like an eternity and not be very high quality. I mean, you know, you've experienced things that didn't last very long that seem to last for an eternity. You know, like a piano recital. <laughs> no, it, it, when, when Jesus talks about eternal life, it's not just duration. He's talking about the quality of the life that you're going to live. I mean, it's just amazing what is in store for us with God in paradise. And so I want you to know know all this because that's how you read your Bible. Because that's how you need to live. You need to realize you are part of the story that's in the Bible. So what's the subject of the whole Bible? And some would say, well, it's us. The whole Bible is about God reaching and rescuing people. But uh, no, we're not the subject. We're the object, but the subject of the story is Jesus. It's Jesus. Revelation 5, blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is what the whole Bible is all about. The pastor, he doesn't show up till the New Testament. No, no, Jesus is in Genesis Who do you think is doing all that creating? It's Jesus. Remember last week we sang the song about uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? The fourth guy in that furnace? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus is all over the Psalms. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that speak directly about Jesus Christ. He's the subject of the whole thing. Jesus himself said, you search the scriptures. Now think about this for a moment. When Jesus said, you search the scriptures, what were the scriptures? The only thing available was the Old Testament. None of the New Testament had even been written yet. And so he he says, you search the scriptures? Because you think if you keep all those rules and laws and make all those sacrifices that they're going to give you eternal life? Jesus says, no, 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 you missed it. He says, the scriptures point to me. The Old Testament points to me. Why is that important? Why is that important to you? Because that's how you read your Bible. You read the Bible and find Jesus. You read the Bible and find Jesus. You know, I love the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament because I believe Jesus can bring New Testament reality to those Old Testament truths. I mean, they're relevant to our life. It's the Word of God. But Jesus is the subject. And we're the object. What's the verb? What's the verb? And I know some of you are thinking right now, well, love. Love is the verb. And that's close. That's real close. But love is the foundation of the verb. Love is the motivation of the verb. But love is not the verb of the Bible. The verb is something even greater than love. 
You know, the verb isn't just that God loved or felt love. No. Most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. There's the foundation. There's the motivation. But look at the verb. God so loved the world that he gave. God didn't just love. He gave. He expressed it. He gave his love to us. That's why Christian or non-Christian, been in church your whole life, not been in church your whole life, I want you to see this reality. Because once you see this, you will never read the Bible the same again. Because the Bible defines what we do as Christians. Because God gave not just so we could receive something, he gave so we give. He gave his life, so give your life. I mean, it's the lens that you've got to read the Bible through. He gave, so we give. And this is not just a pitch for bigger offerings. This is far bigger than that. Far bigger than that. God gave something no one else was even in line to give you. And that is, God gave His one and only Son. Not just to die on the cross to save me from my sins. No. God gave His one and only Son to be slaughtered, to lay down his life voluntarily as a sacrifice for your sin. And God watched approvingly. It was the greatest act of love the universe has ever known. What's the response to that kind of love? That gift of love. What do we give? We give our lives. Salvation is not just believing in Christ. Believing is part of the discipleship process. It's part of the order of the Christian life. But God did not call you just to be a believer. I believe in God. I believe in the Bible. It's not enough. The Bible says the demons believe and tremble. But they're not going to be in paradise with God. That's not the goal. No. The Bible says he gave everything, so we give everything. And now when I read my Bible, I see how generous God has been to me. From the creation account, I mean, look at the creation God placed us in, to his faithful sustaining of Israel, of stiff-necked and rebellious people, to his sending of his son to die on the cross as a sacrifice for my sins, to the institution of the church. What a gift the body of Christ is. To the gifts that he gives the people in the body of Christ. The spiritual gifts that you have, that God gives to you. To the word that he gave us. The word that thoroughly equips us. What? To be a servant of God so we're equipped to do every good work. That's what it's about. It's about receiving eternal life through believing in Christ, and it's about doing eternal life with the body of Christ, with one another. Love isn't just an emotion that you feel in your heart. No, love's got to flow out of your hands and your feet and and your mouth. If you love, you must act. If you love, you must give and serve and work and do. I mean, if all we had to do was believe, the Bible could be one page long. But it's not. It's far longer. Because it's far richer, far deeper. The love of God is far more extravagant than that. And the love we are to express back to God and to one another is to be far richer, far deeper, far more extravagant. 
We are part of an epic saga of love. And God calls us to live our part. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to know our Bibles because we want to know you. We want to understand you more and more each day so we can love you more and more. And so, God, I pray that that you would just help each of us to read the Bible, to meditate on it, to help each of us to get into a small group where we can explore the depths of your word. God, you forewarned us that in the coming year we're going to face things we didn't know was coming. But if we have built our lives on the foundation of your word, we can stand in the face of that storm. Father, you've called us to receive your love and you've called us to extend your love to the people around us to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to people who don't know you yet. God, you've been audacious enough to command us to love our enemies, to love those who persecute us. God, you've called us to love, to serve, to give, to work, and to go because you've done all of that for us. And you call us just to do it back in response. Thank you, Father. If you're in this service today, and and I described you when I talked about the separation, the chaos that sin brings, if you feel separated and distant from God, if your life seems chaotic and confused, you you need to come to Jesus Christ. You just need to to find Christ and receive Him into your life. And if, if you'd say, I'm ready to trust in Christ today, I just want to pray for you. If you're ready to give your life to Christ, I'm not going to ask you to come down front. I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm not going to ask you to pray out loud. I'm just going to ask you in this moment to just raise your hand and say, yeah, I'm ready to receive Jesus Christ. If that's you, would you just put your hand up? And then just pray in the quietness of your own heart and mind. Just say, Jesus, thank you for giving your life for me. Thank you for for redeeming me. And I give my life to you completely. Everything I am, I surrender my all to you. God, save me, change me, transform me. Jesus, we, we give our lives to one another as an expression of the love that you have for us. And in your precious name we pray. Amen.